From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Kathy and Dan McLaughlin, creators of Our Wine Flights and founding members of the Fine Wines of North Carolina and aspiring documentarians. Kathy and Dan talk to us about what they're doing to help elevate the brand of North Carolina wine. They also talk to us about the important medical research that's going on with the Muscanine Group and the health benefits that the grape can bring. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about their council by going to their website, ncwine.org. Sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today with Kathy and Dan McLaughlin of Our Wine Flights. Mm-hmm. Fine wines of North Carolina and all sorts of things. So we're going to be talking about uh, a variety of topics. So, Kathy, Dan, welcome to Cork Talk. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. So tell folks who you are and, and a little bit more about what you do. Hi, I'm Kathy. And I'm Dan. <laughs> that was pretty lame. You can tell a little more about yourself. Kathy's, I'll tell about Kathy's you. Kathy's a little shy. Kathy's a little, I'll say Kathy, Kathy's from Canada originally. And transported down to Durham at a young age, and then moved to Kansas City, and that's where I met her. And um, then I took a job at Winston-Salem, and then and Kathy moved along afterwards. But And I followed you here, yes. Mm-hmm. So, and I grew up in Actually, Massachusetts. I was invited to follow you here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. And I grew up in Massachusetts, and then moved to Kansas City for a job, and that's where we met. Uh, for a job out there, we were working in the same company, and when I, when I got invited to come to Winston Salem, I'm like, "Well, she was from North Carolina. Maybe she'll want to go back, you know, at some point." Uh, even though we love Kansas City, uh, but it, and then we came to Winston Salem. We figured we'd be here for a few years, and it's been over 25 now, so we're uh, we love it here. It's a good place to stay. Yeah, it's fun, and especially with all the stuff that's been going on in the wine industry and the craft brewers and everything. You know, it's just been. Getting better and better. We like it a lot. So, how did you get into wine and beer, and especially, I mean, wine and beer in general? I guess I'd say my family, from a young age, wine was always part of our meals. Hmm. We, my parents, when we were younger, they had these little tiny, I think they're cocktail or they're one ounce um, aperitif glasses. And so while my parents would have the larger wine glasses, <laughs> my sister, brother, and I would have the little one-ounce glasses. And in Montreal, when we'd go to restaurants, my father would order a bottle of wine, and he, the waitress would pour a little bit in the glass for me. And I can remember years ago going to Cape Cod in the summer, and they didn't like to share wine with children there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's too much of a stigma on it here, I think. Yeah. But it's a good idea to expose them young to get them acclimated to it so it's not this whole, I gotta drink. Mm-hmm. It's no, you enjoy the beverage with the food. You enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And I, I started um, 
I come from a small town in Massachusetts that's known throughout the state was known for the amount of bars. We had a world record from Guinness of the amount of bars per square mile. We were the big winners at that point. But um, so there's a lot of beer and stuff like that. But when I went uh, a semester abroad, I spent a semester in college in um, Valencia, Spain. And I ended up going and my roommate, when we got off the bus, was like, see, ya, I'm going to go hitchhiking. And uh, so I ended up with this family and they like, it was uh, two older women and the mother, and I was the only guy in the house. And they would come out every you know, every day that we had lunch and dinner. We always had a Rioja wine or something that was local. And it's like, wow, I really like this. This is you know really you know a great way to have food, and you know it complemented everything. And so you get to know it, and you get you know after every day after day after day, it's like okay, I didn't plan saying you, and then it's, you know so you, and then it's like well, let me try a different one and see how it varies from that. And, so anyway, it was, it was kind of fun. And then, you know, I was still underage at that point. So when I got back to the States, <laughs> it was like I had a little bit of a slowdown there, but then came back and we, we've gone back to Spain a lot of times. And that's kind of when we started our business, we went over there too. So. Yeah. I would also say when we lived in Kansas City, we would, a group of people, a group of our friends, we would do, we'd take weekend trips from Kansas City over to St. Louis and about, 30 minutes outside of St. Louis was a wine region. And we started going to, I think it was Mount Pleasant mm-hmm. and a few others. And that was where we first started tasting some hybrid wines. And it was, you know, it was, again, it's, it's that discovery. It's like, you know, it doesn't all have to be Chardonnay. It all doesn't have to be Cab Franc or Cab, Cab Sauve. It's, you know, it's like, oh, let's try this and try something else. And, and they would, I mean, that whole area there had just a really great region of, um, you know, farmers. And so there was not just the wine, it was the food that they were pairing with it too. So it wasn't always just about the wine. You always had good food to go with it. And I think that's really important. You know, For sure. You know, I can enjoy a glass of wine on its own, but it's also, you know, when we have food, it's just like, it makes it that much better. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. So then, so then you decided to delve more into wine. Yeah, we, we work, we both had professional careers that were really taxing. Um, we had, you know, multiple people reporting to us. It was, you know, change after change. Uh, companies were buying us out, selling, they were merging. It was just, it, it was not what you got into in the first place. And I, you know, and I felt bad cause I had a bunch of people that reported to me and it's like, you know, I was you know, I was staying too long, I think, uh, because, you know, cause I wanted to make sure that they were, you know, get the training they needed to go into the next thing or to, were going to be able to survive all the different changes. And, and I came home one night and Kathy's like, you got to stop. She's like, you're not being, you know, because I was like, oh, I made, you know, somebody made a nasty comment to me. And I get, I went back and snapped back at him. And I'm like, oh, she cried. And she's like, that is not you. You need to leave. You need to figure out something you want to do that's going to be fun. Um, and she was, you know, she used to make fun of the people who were, oh, you know, you should be putting in 50, 60 hours, 70 hours. It's like, that's crazy. It's ridiculous. You're not going to be fun. And, and somehow you end up down that rabbit hole. So we, we ended up. We used to take vacations and we'd always say like, well, what would you do if you won a million dollars or if you won, you know, the, the lottery or like, what would you do for your second career if you, if you could choose it at this point? Because, you know, tell them about the guy who was at your conference. Uh, years ago. So I worked in the insurance industry for years. And I Years ago, we were at a, uh, just a day seminar training session. The speaker said, okay, show of hands, how many of you grew up wanting to be in the insurance industry? 
And you looked around the room and there were no hands up. And he said, okay, so you're all here by default like me. And it was, you know, we, we had some great times working with the insurance industry and in that industry. Mm -hmm. Kansas City was so much fun working at the National Association insurance commissioners but it was um, at the end of the day I mean as I told Dan one time you go to a meeting somewhere and somebody says oh what do you do and you say I work with insurance and they go oh let me go talk to Joe over here <laughs> and, uh, even worse regulatory compliance for insurance and they just like she's like well they never talked to me before now I do wine stuff everyone wants to talk to me I'm like that's because they were worried about wine is fun yeah, it is is not. yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys know that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But there is regulatory compliance for wine, too. So that, I don't think that's Could funny. Either. <laughs> I, I think that starts with the ABC. Uh -huh. yeah. And the yeah. only ABC that I've met that I really love, we were in Florida earlier this year, and we were at a store that says ABC outside, and it's a chain across the state of Florida. And I, and the back of the lady's shirt said, always be celebrating. Oh. And that's what their ABC stands for. <laughs> so, a little different. different than here. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so that was kind of our entree into, we, we, so we, we would ride around, we'd go on vacation, we traveled a lot. So we always, you know, we didn't have kids. So we always said, okay, let's travel and do as much travel as we can. And when we would go, a lot of times it ended up, we were at vineyards. You know, it was always incorporating a restaurant someplace and then saying, oh, this is a great wine. And maybe you went to a region, you didn't get out to the vineyards because back then, really, a lot of them didn't have a lot of vineyard tourism type of stuff. You had the food that, you know, and you'd see a bottle of wine, you'd be like, okay, I can bring some of these home. But they didn't have that whole experience where you go and, you know, see, meet the winemaker. I mean, it's much more advanced than it was back, you know, in the, I'd say late 90s, you know, early 2000s, I guess it's just increased since then but um so it was, it was like oh, that would be fun it's like if we could work with wine and, and craft crafters and and talk about what we like to do and, and incorporate travel somehow and, and so, we always love taking pictures and so it's just a natural progression for us mm -hmm. uh, so when we, we decided we both uh step away from our jobs in the corporate world we started our wine flights and um our beer flights uh, wine has been really the one that's been the bigger driver for us because it, it, we do, I mean, we do like both. But um, when we first got back, that was when uh, we posted up some of our videos that we had done for um, some of the wineries in uh, the Rioja region because uh, that was my favorite. It was like, let's go over there. We can film some and do some things. And, and Kathy and there was a, got a LinkedIn. Really, I got a LinkedIn message from Jay Raffalini one day. And I normally, when I get a LinkedIn message, sometimes uh, usually I accept it, just get pulled in another direction and don't really follow up from that. And that day, for some reason, I sent a note back and I said, really intrigued that you reached out and we had started a business you know, working with craft brewers and wineries and would love to meet. And sent a note back immediately, said, well, I'm out of the country, but let's get together in three weeks. And we got together in three weeks, and that was what led us down the path to start the Fine Wines of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, when we met him, it was funny because we like to talk. And Jay was just like, the whole time, he was like, okay, it's great to have you here. And this is what we want to do. And then he went right into it. And it was, um, you know, we were... 
interest intrigued. We've been going to North Carolina wineries for a long time. I mean, and uh, he, I don't think we knew him really well, but I mean, we we had seen him at the vineyard and that kind of stuff, but we didn't know him. And he's like, he had a challenge that he was like, I want to elevate North Carolina wine so they're not just known in North Carolina, but beyond. Uh, he's like, we'd really, you know, people, and I know um, Chuck Jones and Jones Vondrell, he was like, you know, he goes, people say, oh, this is great wine for North Carolina. He goes, it's not just for North Carolina anymore. It's, you know, it's great wine, period. And so that's what we were saying. It's like, okay, yeah, we agree with that. You know, you guys have done a really great job. He's like, well, we need to, what's a way we can elevate it? And so one of the ways that you can do it, um, although it's always different, is um, doing a competition. And so they're like, well, we'd like to do one, but let's up it. Um, let's, let's make it harder than the normal ones. Let's make it something that vineyards would want to enter because of the fact that they get something out of it. Um, a lot of times, of you know, a wine competition, you enter in a wine, and, you know, three weeks later or a month later, whatever, you get a note back and says you won XYZ, you know, bronze, silver, gold, and there's no feedback. And they're like, we want feedback. We want, we want professionals. We want people who are selling wine that are sommeliers, that are high-level sommeliers, that are you know, somebody that's going to be, you know, not affected or prejudiced by North Carolina wine. That, you know, and you guys have seen that too. I mean, we, we've done events where we sure. put out North Carolina wine and it's like, have a free drink. And people are like, oh no, had it, you know, 20 years ago and I never liked it. And it's like, well, do you ever go to it? My thing is I always say, it's like, do you ever have like a kid play piano when they're five years old and then come back when they're 25? It's right. a whole different ball game at that point, you know, or different concert. So that's kind of what's been going on one. And I think, that's what we've been trying to do and educate people on the wines that are here. Cause there's, there's a lot of quality. There's a lot of variety. North Carolina is blessed with a whole bunch of different environments that they can do different types of grapes. You got mountains, sea, you know, and everything in between. And um, so that's, that's kind of when we first met and said, okay, we'll put, we went away for like about three weeks, which now knowing Jay must've killed him because we, <laughs> he's, he's, Pretty much a, like an instantaneous kind of guy and, but, and likes those we, thick, fast answers. And But we spent those three weeks researching what what would a competition look like? How would we go about creating a competition? Who would we bring in for judges? What kind of kind of back office and what kind of, um, yeah. you know, what kind of support is there to run a competition? What, you know, so we were researching competitions around the United States and other countries looking at what those were and finding out that, yes, there's resources to help. There's software that can help with some of that. And, and basically, we also, since we had recently started our own business, this was going to divert a lot of our attention from the path that we were going down. And one of the things that we'd taken a number of classes over at Forsyth Tech at the Small Business Center as we were, as we were getting started and one of the things that somebody told us there, they said, you know, you will, when you start a business, you will go down a certain path and you think you're continuing down the path that way. And then something will come along and it will divert your attention. And mm. it's an opportunity. And, and you'll, you'll pivot. Was, you yeah, need to pivot. pivot. And, <laughs> and we pivoted. Was big pivot. <laughs> it was a big pivot. Yeah. So it was, it was really good. We got to, um, we got to reach out and find out about what was going on, different ones. And, when we were initially approached about the competition, the vineyards all grew Benifra grapes. 
And as we started to build the guidelines surrounding the competition, we also included hybrid grapes because those were making wine similar to similar quality to what you were seeing from the traditional vinifera. So, I mean, one of the things about the competition, the fine wines competition that we did was it's 100% North Carolina grown and vinified. You can put North Carolina on a label with 75%. Um, and and that's great, but it's like, how do you really distinguish that it's made here? You know, um, and so we and this was through conversations with different vineyards too. It wasn't just us on our own for everything, but it was a lot of a, you know, kind of gathering up the information. Um, and, and one of the things is we started because the wanting to create the competition was a conversation that Jay Rappaldini and Chuck Jones had been having for a while, mm-hmm. and so they were the two drivers behind wanting to get this started and but i mean they're so busy with running those you know their own and you know they were like you know we you know we'll help you get started but we're also you know we're not going to be hands-on it's going to be you know we'll we'll go over as, as well you know we'll work together but we really don't have the bandwidth to do all our, our business and everything they do to keep this place running so they're like we'll we'll get you with people that will help you know, get this moving. So that's what they did. And, and it's our seventh year now. So coming up. So, um, and you know, it's really changed because at the beginning, you know, there, there's always been the push for quality. I mean, you start, you start with the vineyard, you start with the winery and everyone's got that starting point. And it's not like a brewer where you can, you know, change, you know, you wait six weeks, eight weeks, something doesn't go right. Well, you can start it again because right. you can go out and get the other things. I mean, these poor guys are out there depending on what the weather is what's happening, did that variety do great, did it not do great? I mean, it, I mean, they've thrown so many different caveats into the, you know, and I mean, that happens in a lot of places, but not maybe in California where the, where the weather's pretty consistent. Ours is just all over the place. So anyway, it, it was really interesting to meet with them and hear that what they had to say. And then we started doing this competition and, um, you know, immediately we, uh, we're able to meet with people from the James Suckling group who were like, oh, we'd like to find out what's going on. You know, we, James Suckling's one of the well-known wine tasters, best in the world, you know, known probably the top two or three. And um, he reached out and we would supply him with the wines and say, hey, this is something you need to be looking at. And a couple of years later, he was like, yeah, you're definitely, he goes, this is, you know, he, they actually took him. And mixed them in so that they didn't even know they were from North Carolina with their other tastings, and then they pulled them out and they're like, "Wow, these are getting goals by this guy," you know. And he he's like, "We need to pay attention to more than just the West Coast," and so he came up with this great, you know, their organization did this great thing called the Great American Tasting, and it's everything but the West Coast because they're all so used to just hitting there. So, and North Carolina played a big part in getting that kicked off because he was so shocked at some of the, the wines that were being created and 100%, you know, again, it's a, that made a big difference. It's like, no, it's from there, not, not you know, it's 100% terroir in North Carolina. So. so let's let's go back to the competition a bit and take us kind of behind the scenes. So what happens when, when you're getting ready for the competition and then the actual judging and then take us into when the winners are announced at the gala? Okay, well, we start... Usually beginning of the year, about four months out from the competition, and we'll put an announcement out. We contact the vineyards in North Carolina to let them know that its competition is open and they can enter their wines online. Um, and then we wait. 
<laughs> and uh, one of our, we, and, we, yeah, no, one of the we're not twiddling our thumbs. We we also have well, to contact all the the sommeliers who can make it on this because the sommeliers that I mean they're not you know they're not paid for this. They get a little stipend for coming in and it's their time. But for them, it's knowledge. I mean, it's right. all about them. It's the education. Sure. It's so key to their organization is educating people about the North Carolina wine. So it's getting those people, can they hit it at this date? When can we do it? You know, get all those moving parts of any event to kind of come together. Um, and we've been so fortunate. We've had some really great people come in as judges. A lot of them, they all have professional careers in the wine industry. And uh, a lot of them have been through uh, quartermaster sommelier programs or we set um, and have high level designations. And these are just people that know what good wine is supposed to taste like. And we're very fortunate that they come back. Many of them come back year after year, um, sometimes take a year off in between, but we've been very fortunate. Mm -hmm. So everything is as ju is judged blind, and the judges don't talk to each other. That's right? that's a, yeah. That's kind of unique. Where the, everyone talks about blind competitions, we're like the only one we know that's mute. Yeah. So it's right. like, I mean, it's hate to be a disability thing, but it kind of fit right in with right. it. So what they do is because <clears throat> when we did talk to the sommeliers and different ones who were at competitions, and they like, you know, you, there's one in every crowd. Well, this thing is terrific, you know, or this is this. How could you give this anything but a seventy? Thought, you know, yeah, you know, right. So there's always back and forth, and what what we wanted was focus on tasting notes. Tell us what's what you like in it. Tell us what you see might be a flaw. Tell us what where it could be improved. You know, can you taste the grape? Is it varietally correct? You know, one of the things we used to hear, you know, ten years ago was, well, this is how a North Carolina wine tastes. You're not hearing that anymore because. They've learned how to do things better, and they, you know, and it, and and so they would say, "This is what's going on with this," and you know, so that's really the education part. So we had some really great educators come in and educate us. They sat down, we, you know, they so we have it as a blind, and we have the, you know, mute. After it's done, and they put their scores down, they walk away. They can talk about it at that point. If there's something they think there's a flaw and it shouldn't be tasted, it has with this group of people. We've never had anyone doubt that. It's always been, there's a flaw. And it's been very few times because we know, that most people know that this competition isn't just the average one. They'll, they'll get their stuff out and say, okay, it shouldn't be here. Um, there, we might have an issue with this, you know, and we're not going to put it in. So it never makes it to the table. Um, but the ones that, you know, if it has happened, we'll go to the second bottle. And most of the time that's, that's it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a good way to, um, for us to learn. We used to have, we used to get three bottles you know, for every one that was entered, and, and we found out we never went beyond two. So it's like, okay, we don't need the third bottle. So you know, let's, let's just stick with the two, which is great for storage and helping us to travel around. But it's so that education, then there's always, you know, um, afterwards when it's done, you know, people will say, well, can we talk to, you know, they'll ask us, like, well, we have, because they never had the scores before. So not only do they get the tasting notes, we started because the first year they're like, well, I can't see how statistically this could have ever been achieved like this, you know? And so we said, the next year we'll put, if you want the score, we'll do each individual score because we include, one of the things we do is we work with UNCG and the Bryant School of Business and Economics. They come in and oversee everything. So they read off, they'll read the score, Kathy's enters it in, she repeats it back to them. It's all, you know, calculated and they approve it. And then they also have their students in different from different areas come in and they'll do the survey and the back, help the backroom management team. So it's that a piece of the education. 
but it's also um, so we get them to come on board. But after it's all done, you know, people ask questions. What what do you see? Where are the trends going? And it's basically it's just going straight to quality. I mean, it's it's been a huge push to quality. Um, one of the things was they looked at it and they said that there were very few category, very few entries for the category for sparkling. Well, sparkling has just yeah. taken off in yeah. North Carolina, and, and it's taken off around the country too. Right. It's not just because of that, but it's been one of those that are like, hmm, there's only four entries in that. I'm going to try to get in there for that category because I want to, you know, be the best of. Um, but what we've really seen is you can see some of the um, the. Um, Here's when we have to edit the pause. I'm just laughing because this is the longest run-on sentence I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, okay, there you, go, there you go. You can keep that in. We'll, we'll keep that part. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, <laughs> with, uh, the hybrids we're seeing that we put in a category to kind of you know showcase everyone right. we had. Some of the hybrids now are coming in right up with the viniferas. I mean, they have they have earn their spot and their reputation in there. I mean, we've had a couple of, you know, we, we always liked them before because we like changing. Like we said earlier, it's like, it, you, you know, nobody likes one single color palette. You know, you, you don't want to have just black and white all the time. You want to have a little color in there. And it's been really, they've been adding some, you know, some, some really great wines to them. So talk to us about the, about the game <coughs> and then how the awards are announced and, and the case that it's involved. Yeah, that. Start with like Sam and you guys, how you do all the calculations. Good. Everyone has an auditor, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, we work, at, so during the competition, we have, you have the judging. And while the judging is taking place after the scores or all the judges write their tasting notes, put their scores down, those records are all collected. And we've got a background team that collects um, the information. And then that is reviewed. And then after it's reviewed for completeness and legible that's brought back into a separate room with computers we have a big tv monitor that we set up and so anybody can come by that's working there and see as the scores are being entered so um, and we've got i work with sam troy from uncg and we've got a team from uncg that comes helps comes to help us with the competition um, so we enter the scores, and one of us calls it out. One of I'll enter. Sam calls it out. I call it back. So we go th- back and forth through that process uh, for two days. Wow! And then it calculates, you know, just the Excel spreadsheet calculating out the scores, um, and then those get at the end the uh, the top lines are identified. And it's like the Oscars. So we know, and like Dr. Bird, Eric Bird is there too, and he does, he's, he, he'll see the information with us and is along with the background management team, but we're the only ones who know. So basically the vineyards don't even know when we start this, all they know are the number of wines that have been entered and the number of vineyards. So everyone else on the board, we kind of recuse ourselves on the board during the, the competition and we'll work on this. And then after it's done, they know, you know, none of them ever see the tasting notes except for their own vineyard. So it's a very, we keep it confidential yeah. because that's, it's a business. We don't want anyone to feel, you know, like there's any kind of sharing of that right. information at all. Um, but then, so we keep that confidential. We go out and then Kathy does, cause she's the detail person. She's really good at all that. She gets all the trophies and the, um, the, medals and everything like that. So that when we come up for the gala, we'll have those top 12 wines that are selected. 
so we can hand them their their crystals that night, and which is a fun night because it is like an Oscars thing where nobody knows, and and you get to see them, you know, surprised or shocked, and afterwards they'll come up and they might get, you know, the ones who didn't get it might gig you a little bit, but it's gotten a lot better <laughs> since. Because they know what's going to be really, a really fun night. Yeah, and it's, it's a really fun, really fun to be part of the celebration mm-hmm. and recognize just the great things that are going on with North Carolina wine these days. It's it's amazing. The the one thing that coming from a corporate world, we used to have almost like every year, two years, they change the corporate. You know, like what their motto is. It's like, well, we need to write our motto because everyone who would come in, we'd have you know the rotating office things, and they'd always have a new motto. But we've, you know, the one thing that's always been really good with this group is way over board meetings. If there's something, it's always been what's best for the industry. What's it's not what's best for me. It's not what's best for you or this vineyard. It's a, and it's always said what's a rising tide raises all boats. Or we're not trying to take a bigger piece of the pie. We're trying to make a bigger pie. And I think that's really truly what we, you know, what I see from them is when they say stuff. And we've had a mix. You guys know. We've had some of the large ones, and we've had some really small venues right. to come yeah. in, and, and mm-hmm. that's what's really cool. It's like you know, they, you know, you see them get so excited, and they're like, you know, somebody like even somebody who gets a bronze or a silver medal, they're like, we know this is a damn tough competition, and if I've got somebody like, you know, Inez Ribostello, who's one of ours, and she was the last a beverage director at Windows on the World, and uh, you know. She knows why she was serving top dollar wine to people who make money all over the world, and you know, and so if they're saying it's good, they, they know they can take that to the bank, and that, and it's just proves what they're doing has just been, you know, come so far, so fast too. So, so everyone, everyone loves the gala. I mean, it's, it's a fun night, and it's and and it's really again celebrating the industry, not just the individual winners. I think it really makes it's good for everyone. Absolutely. And, and it's a, over the course of announcing the winners, we also, it's a multi-course wine paired dinner. So you get the opportunity to try some new varietals that you may not have tried before um, in North Carolina and all paired with beautiful food and very fun night. And then mm-hmm. our MC here, yeah. Dan. It's one of those, I, I like doing stuff when it's a small group, but when it's a big group, I get a little, but it's, I get a little nervous. Done it before. I, I, I know, it's, but every year you get look at it, it's like, okay, I hope I don't say anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I get when people say that, it's like, do you get do you announce the wrong name or do you say something? And it's like, oh. The stay on script. That's my, my thought. I've gone yeah. off script before and it hasn't gone well. So. Mm. Yeah. And that's why we have the crystal with the names yeah, on the there. Yeah, the crystal. So, yeah, so right. as you read that, if you could read it. Uh-huh. But it's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. And it's like, and, you know, people come back. We, I, I mean, Part of it is the education. We want to get new people in. So I think it's good to keep coming in with new people and, and new ones to the gala to experience and new vineyards too. I mean, that's what we, you know, vineyards go through their changes with the weather. And so they may not have something, you know, especially the last couple of years, we had a lot of early frost. And so people will call us and say, hey, you know, we don't have anything this year to enter that we haven't done before, um, but we'll be back next time. You know, and, and, it's, and that's great. You know, it's again, it's an, I always say an invitation, no obligation. We, you know, so the categories, so talk to us again specifically about the case itself. So, so there's categories, so there's a best of show, and then there's some other categories in there as well. There is. Uh, we The competition is set up with, we have six unique categories 
There's best red, best white, best rosé, best sparkling, best hybrid, and best dessert port. And so those are the six primary categories. And then the case of 12 is filled out by the next the next six highest scored wines in the competition. The And, and so that's how, the, those are the top 12. We also, there's a lot of medals that are awarded, uh, a lot of gold, silver, bronze medals that are awarded to the different wines that are entered in the competition. And in the last and couple we, of years, what we did is somebody came up to us and said, you know, I really want to know who makes the best Robertsdorminer, you know, in the, in the state, or, you know, who makes the best Tanat. And so we started adding that in our list too. That was just something to, you know, somebody comes in and they say, oh, I'm going to buy a bottle of wine, North Carolina wine for a friend who makes the best, you know, un oak Chardonnay. And then you use that as kind of a reference or a yeah. guide. So another classification. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's again, it's more than just that top 12. And we've actually had some, a couple of ties. So we've had like, I call it the baker's or the drinker, you know, like a baker's dozen. You have yeah, the drinker's right. dozen where they've tied and it's like, well, we don't want to lose anyone, you know, so I'd rather have, have more in the, in the boat than not. So and you got to find a 13 slot case. <laughs> it's a, it's somewhat virtual. It's in mind. <laughs> so the university of North Carolina, Bryan school of business and economics, the uh, Dr. Eric bird, uh, Sam Troy and Dr. Bird brings a team of his or a, a class of his students to help with the competition every year. And so the students come into the back room and they support opening the wine, they pour wine, they deliver wine to the judges, they pick up wine from the judges. So they've been tremendously helpful in the execution of the competition. And then Dr. Bird oversees that process with our backroom manager. Um, we also have Sam Troy who works with me on the scoring, um, entering the scores that, uh, that the wines receive and that tabulation. And so that team provides the oversight as well. So that's like uh, the, the ones that do the Oscars where they come out and say, you know, the, they get that little bit of like all the scores are tabulated by and held confidential by this group until this evening. And that's kind of what they do is they, after the very end, one of the last things we do is we cut a, um, a copy of all the stuff and give it to Sam and Eric so that they can take it away. And if, you know, you know, God forbid we get hit by a truck or something, they would have all the information they would need from that to, to kind of help on that last night. So. As, as does our backroom yeah, they also do. team. And Carl and Nancy, they're, they're, yeah. they're the ones who help us all out on that. So. Shout out to Carl and Nancy. <laughs> yes, they, they do a great job each year. And they've been helpful for the, the State Fair, too. Mm -hmm. so, so. so talk to us, so besides the competition, besides the gala, there are other things that the fine wines of North Carolina so talk to us about some of those. I think one of the biggest ones for us is that we've been able to raise almost third, well, about thirty-seven thousand, almost to forty thousand dollars this year up to now for scholarships for North Carolina uh, students in North Carolina pursuing wine-related careers at North Carolina schools, colleges, or universities. Um, so, and in the areas related, so you have like. Viticulture, enology, fermentation, those types of things, and tourism and hospitality. So any of those categories we have them out there, and we've been, you know, that's been a, a, a great, and that was from one of the very be beginnings, uh, one of our first goals was to, you know, how do we keep it here and, you know, keep this knowledge base here? Because, I mean, 
you know that they could make more if they went to California or if they went to another place. It's like you got to have, you got to build your own group to support it. Um, so I think that's been one of our, you know, it's not quite fully funded. We hope to have it fully funded with the Winston and Salem Foundation. Um, and that way it'll be in perpetuity. We don't have to do it. And we don't, I mean, the great thing about that is we give it to them. You know, that's, that's their specialty. I mean, they have hundreds of different ones. And they interview all the people on their own. We don't have to do anything. So there's no input from us other than the ground rules and the basics that we set out for them. And that way it's, it's clear. It's, yeah, you know, it's they, no do, they do such a great job managing the Winston-Salem yeah. Foundation does such a great job managing scholarships. And we were fortunate to, to work with them from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, Excellent. So anything else with the fine lines before we take a quick break? I guess the only thing I'd say is to come to the gala. You know, we, if you get it, not this year, next year, whatever. Um, it's, you know, people say, oh, do I got to get dressed up in a tux? No, I have to get dressed up in a tux. You, they don't have to. You know, it's like, come, you know, you know, women never, you never tell them what to wear because they know what to do. It's like the guys are always like, do I need to have a suit on? I'm like, bring a suit coat and you can take it off and put it on the back of your chair when you get in there, you know? It's just about having fun and meeting people and like-minded people that want to try wine and, and have good food and just enjoy and find out what's happening with North Carolina business. That's what now they say over six, $6 billion, is it now? That's the new estimate spend, I, I heard. So, yeah. so, I mean, it's a big it's a big part of the North Carolina economy. So. And it's just, a, it's just a fun night. It's it a little bit of industry, people from the vineyards, farmers, the winemakers all the way to just people who love wine. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about a different topic. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. So the last time we talked about the 1500s, mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're talking about the 1600s. That's correct. Which is also known as the 17th century. <laughs> I always got to remember to add one. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. So we're going to be talking about the 1600s tonight. And so here's a little context about what was going on at this time and the backdrop of um, how wine can fit into this. So in the year 1602, the Dutch East India Company was established. Uh, that's important for trade and, you know, colonialization and some things that we'll talk about and hit on tonight. In 1611, there was the first publication of the King James Version of the Bible. In 1616, William Shakespeare died. Womp womp. We talked about him last episode and his character that was really intent on the sack, the English sack and sherry. Um, we also had the Thirty Years' War taking place, which lasted for, you know, 30 whole years. And in 1620, the Mayflower set sail. And also in 1631, Mount Vesuvius erupted. So there's a lot that happened. Still in the same theme of yeah. religion, wars, art, colonialization, volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> we're adding those. Yeah. I think this is our first volcano on the podcast. I think it is. And we're talking about Dutch East Indies, so maybe there's some pirates? Ooh, I certainly think so. <laughs> Um, yeah, so lots to cover. In this, so we'll just jump right in. But in the 1600s, um, glass wine bottles were first popularized in Portugal, and this was in an attempt to age port wine. And they were, it was inspired by records of amphorae. So if you recall from our very first historical episode, 
These are those ancient containers that have the pointed bottom and the kind of the top top, top handles and uh, containers like that. But unfortunately, these bottles stood upright, and so the corks would dry out and lose their seal. So not super great for wine at this time. Also, though, in the early 1600s, we have the settlement at James Jamestown and the start of grapevines there. So in 1609, Captain John Smith wrote that around the new British settlement in Jamestown, Virginia, there were grapevines, quote, in great abundance that climbed to the tops of the highest trees. And so these were probably Vitis rotundifolia probably or so. another <laughs> local varietal, um, varietal, but both of these produce dark red wines with big fruity flavors and not Vitis vinifera. But what a welcome surprise. For I know. Day. Yeah. Like we've arrived. So the Thirty Years' War, though, took place from 1618 until, well, let's do some math real quick, <laughs> 1648. And it was fought in Central Europe. And, oh well, it lasted for 30 years, but it also de dealt a severe blow, and most vineyards were torn out or destroyed in the areas that have impacted the um, Thirty Years' War. So Alsace in Germany, which we talked about last episode, as being really important to the rise of the Riesling grape. So that's a big bummer, um, boo war. But um, we also have a really exciting natural event that happened somewhere around 1650. We obviously don't know the exact date, but somewhere in Bordeaux, Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc naturally crossed and combined to create Cabernet Sauvignon, the wine that we all know and love today. So that's a very exciting event that happened in the 1600s, which seems like relatively modern and shouldn't have a, have happened so soon and recently um, in relative history, but it does, it did, so that's pretty cool. And we also have a guy named Arnaud de Pontac, and he was a landowner that foresaw the future where the red wines of Bordeaux would become luxury items and status symbols for the wealthy. He probably would have been on TikTok today and have made me buy a lot of things and influenced a lot of things. But his family acquired an estate in 1525, and he was very powerful, but gained didn't get the respect of um, or good prices for his wine. But he thought his wine was really special. So he decided to charge so much more for it than the going rate at that time that no one would dare blend it in with the rest um, of the wines, which was common practice at this time. And this was the first time it had been done in Bordeaux. And in 1663, there was a guy named Samuel Pepys, and he was a pioneer of modern tasting notes. Could probably learn a thing or two from him. But he gave this wine a great review. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and De Pontac, the, that guy, the landowner, was also in the Medic region, and he sold these wines for very high as well. So kind of a, a good origin story of marketing and reviews and reviews. What if he posted his review on a wall somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> it's in his timeline. <laughs> and Bordeaux's are still expensive. Yeah. <laughs> it's stuck. So moving on. So, you know, we're in the 1600s, so we're not just in Europe anymore. Um, so we're going to jump over right now to South Africa. Hmm. Um, so in 16, well, in the 1600s, vines are first introduced to South Africa. So new history there. But... In 1685, we have this guy, Simon van der Stel. Um, he was the first governor of the Cape, and he planted a vineyard in Constantia, and he propagated his vines from a French muscat grape. Um, well, within 20 years, 
the Constantia wine was being praised back in Europe. He made a really great wine. A lot of people liked it, different Russian czars, Frederick the Great, British monarchs, but they say no one loved it as much as Napoleon. (laughs) And when he got exiled to St. Helena, he was drinking 30 bottles a month. Oh my. Well, that's one of the days. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it. Is that that a problem? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for one person. Um, So then we're going to jump forward a little bit because we have to close the loop on this story for Constantia Estate. Um, But after that, it had been split up. Um, The vine still existed, but no one was doing anything with it. But in 1980, um, it was bought by a man named Dougie Just, and he was determined to revive this long-lost Constantia wine. So he looked it up, he tried to figure out how they made it, what they did, um, and he tried to emulate it. So he removed half of the crop, he removed all the leaves surrounding the fruit, and then he snapped and twisted the wood holding the branches so that the grapes would shrivel and concentrate in the sun. I mean, he basically killed it, right? Mm-hmm. Um So then they fermented the juice until the yeast died, and so the wine was extremely sweet. Um, And he left it to age for a few years. He did this with a clone of Muscat. Um, So he tried to get the exact same varietal that they did back in the 1600s. And it was released in 1986 as Vin de Constance. And um, Nelson Mandela raised a glass of it in celebration of his release from prison in 1990. So um, it's an example of an ancient wine style being raised from the dead. So that goes back to the 1600s. Wow. That's really cool. That's quite the connection. Wow. Um, So another big thing in the 1600s, we have sparkling wine, Mm. which is exciting. You know, and it's not like sparkling wine was just invented in the 1600s. It happened a long, long time ago by accident really easy to make a sparkling wine because if you don't know fermentation is done, then you have sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. Um, But we start to see some improvements in the middle of the 1600s for that. And it actually started with cider makers in England. And Mm -hmm. so by the mid 1600s, the cider makers were adding a little sugar to their bottles of cider and then corking them and letting them rest for years to develop. Um, And then they would get that the mousse of the bubbles. Um, and a lot of people in London actually called these, these bottle fermented ciders, English champagne. And from the cider makers, there was a man named Christopher Merritt and he learned the methods of creating the bubbles and he did it in wine. And he presented his findings to the Royal Society in London in 1662, which this was 30 years before Don Perignon. Wow. So, he may not have been the first. Yeah. Um, he didn't do it in bottles. It was in barrels. So he didn't go the whole level of, you know, doing the secondary fermentation in a bottle. But hmm. that's kind of the first recording of, of the findings of how to make a sparkling wine. Interesting. Um, but then that leads us into Dom Perignon. So he was appointed cellar master of the Abbey of Hospitallers in 1668. So the 1600s was a great year for sparkling (laughs) or years. (laughs) (laughs) Hundred years. Um, So he was cellar master. The Abbey's wines were already very well known, but he wanted to transform them. So as they were, they were kind of pinkish, sour, likely to fizz. And this is because, um, you know, we're 
in an area where the cool weather stops the fermentation. And so then when it warms up again, it starts fermenting again. Hmm. But he wanted to find a way to make a clear, steel, still white wine and a serious red wine. So he succeeded. He did all that. And sadly, that was his goal, and that's not how we remember him. But um, by the end of the 1600s, sparkling wine became all the rage. And so he tried to perfect it. Um, and in the 1690s is when he brought in strong glass bottles and reintroduced the cork as a closure. He dug caves to keep them in, to keep them cool. So um, in the late 1600s is when he really uh, improved sparkling winemaking and, and figured out the the full nuances of it and how to how to do it. We thank him to this day. Yes. yes. Yeah. And also can't afford him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we're going to take a trip um, to an island off the coast of Morocco, um, to Madeira. So this is an island off the Moroccan coast that was colonized by the Portuguese in 1420. So kind of a callback there. But every ship that was heading across the Atlantic or to India would put into Madeira to replenish water and take on stores, mostly casks of wine, because what else do you need when you're crossing an ocean? True. I mean, you might need some citrus to get prevent scurvy, but also <laughs> wine. So Maybe they should just put it in the wine. Sangria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so brandy was also added to the barrels to give the wine a chance of surviving the sea voyage. But skippers began to notice that the wine underwent an amazing transformation as the casks just rolled around in the bells of the ship and moved around and, and you know underwent that journey. As that happened, the wines became darker and richer and mellowed out. Their harsh acidity was transformed and there was more refreshing and different, transformed, and that's the hallmark of Madeira. So transporting these Madeira wines through tropical seas all the way to America cooked the wines a desirable, unforeseen way and created the modern Madeira winemaking process called estuvagem, which <laughs> sounds like an X-rated term, but also, a, uh, what was it? Estufa, estufa means stove in Spanish and Portuguese. So it literally like cooked the wines. But the real connoisseurs of Madeira were actually the Americans, in particular those in these big old southern cities like Savannah and Charleston. And these were established, you know, starting in the 1660s and onward. And they preferred these lighter styles. And they even differentiated between the casks from different ships that carried the wine to the Americas. And wines were matched to the ship's name rather than to the style. And so it was easy to track how much traveling the barrels had done by checking the ship's logs. And blind tasters were judged by their ability to guess which ship the wine had traveled on. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. Can you imagine having to do that as your taste test? Like, <laughs> right. Um, here, <laughs> producer, what ship did this come on? <laughs> yeah. Um, the wines were not bottled, bottled on arrival in America, but they were siphoned off into large five-gallon demijohns and stored in warm lofts and attics, which is kind of the opposite of what we know and how to treat wine these days. Hmm. And I want to say, didn't Thomas Jefferson toast the toast something with Madeira? Like there's I think so. Tie there. I think we'll get into that in oh, another yeah. century. <laughs> I'm just looking too You're far ahead. A little too far ahead. Uh, in the future, <laughs> we haven't got to the. Constitution so there's a yet. <laughs> long history of Madeira and being well loved in the Americas. Um, but here's another cool thing, and that is corkscrews. So corkscrews were initially known as bottle screws, and they were the first printed reference to them is 
called a, quote, steel worm. And they were used to extract corks, and that first printed reference is from 1681. And they still call it the worm today, too. <laughs> so thank yeah. goodness for that invention. Yeah. And as I joked before we were recording, but it's not that they didn't know how to open them, it's that corks didn't exist and weren't used <laughs> until then, and they had no need for them. Um, but yes, that brings us to the end of our journey tonight, and we'll be talking about some food pairings then, and how we can tie in some things you might still be able to find on the shelves today. So, to tie back into our Jamestown colony, we would do a food pairing with a Virginia Norton. So, I don't know, what would you guys do with a Norton? It goes really well with tomato sauce, from our experience. Mm. So we've yeah, had it a good ass and yeah, mm-hmm. we had it with like you know just a basic like spaghetti with some tomato or a bolognese would be really good with it. Yeah, we went kind of gamey, uh, gamey with yeah, the venison really, or yeah. smoked meat. Um, so we also had that important cross and production of cab saw during this time, which we know plays nicely with so many things. So you can really do anything. It's a very fruit food friendly wine and cab saw. Um, you can really do almost yeah. anything with that one. Um, a Madeira might pair nicely with olives, Jesse's favorite. <laughs> uh, salads, our favorite sushi or smoked salmon. Some sort of gamey goat cheese might be nice too, appearing here. Mm. Um, apple tarts or fruit pastries too, standing against that. And then, yeah, do you have any other I don't know, ideas with a Madeira? I honestly have not had so much, so we'll have to go down to Savannah yeah. and see if they still have any five-gallon jugs sitting around in a warm, stuffy oh, attic. Oh, John. Just play in the jug. Yeah, I don't know. That would be a fun one to try, too, along with our sherry tasting. And then the last one we came up with was cider, so the sparkling that was made famous during this time period. And to us, this plays really nicely with local barbecue, which we ha- are lucky to have a lot of in North Carolina near where we live. So I think it stands nicely with that. Cheese. Cider and yeah. cheese. Or, or like Anything. pork, any kind of pork. Yeah. As you point out with barbecue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that. That's the 1600s. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we definitely ventured quite a ways with this one overseas back and forth. We'll <laughs> yeah. identify that ship later. Rolling around on the ship <laughs> in the cast. Cooking. Well. <laughs> and our astufa gym. <laughs> a little mini stove. <laughs> well, Jesse and Jessica, this has been very excellent. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So we are back with Kathy and Dan. Um, in the second half, we're going to go ahead and talk about a documentary that you've done recently, focusing in on what some might call a North Carolina treasure here, the Muscadine Grape. Um, and it's called Healthy Hope. So let's dive right into it. Well, it's kind of, I, I guess, kind of crazy the way it happened. One of our friends called us one night and invited us to go to a dean's forum over at Wake Forest University. And she said they're talking about the Muscadine grape. And we, we weren't quite sure about going. And We also had the, ga- the Gala stuff was coming up. 
remember okay. we were at the same time and we're like we got a lot going on she's like you're in the you're in the grape industry you need to go to see this and it's like okay you're right you're right so, so we made we, time yeah so we went and we were amazed the wake forest university had all of the graduate students who worked on projects related to the muscadine grape and they had a 20 million dollar gift to investigate the health benefits of the and Dr. Patricia Gallagher was there that evening, and she was the main speaker. And she was just captivating, telling the story. And so after that, Dan arranged to have Dr. Gallagher come speak to the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. And she was fantastic there, she was. Even, mm-hmm. even at a lunch hour mm-hmm. spot. Um, and she just, she held the room. And so we continued to follow that for a while. And and we would call Dr. Gallagher up from time to time and say, oh, how are things going? Where's it going? And at one point, she, she um, said that the $20 million gift that they were, um, they had probably about another you know, year of you know, work left, but they were looking for ways to raise more money. Hmm. And we started, we thought, well, maybe... You know, I'm Maybe always we looking could for nonprofits. So you know, I'm like, I'm looking. I'll keep an eye out and see what I can find for federal grants or state grants to kind of maybe extend it. And we, I remember a couple of times, like we were, it was a program that said, you know, uh, I don't know if they applied to it or not, but I kept on giving her all this information. And she's like, well, you sent me this one. It's you, you've seen me in person. She's like, this is for new and upcoming, you know, outstanding researchers. And I'm like. I know you, I said, but I've also walked around your lab and you have a lot of young and she's like, oh yeah, I never really thought of it that, that way. And you know, when you're looking at stuff, you don't see the whole, you know, so we, we sent her something like that and she and she then, was, she just kept on, we kept in touch and then it's like, well, how can we, you know, what's another way we can help? We do, you know, some video work and we thought, okay, maybe we could put something together that they could have that would be a short little five minute thing that says, here's what's going on and would you help you know, help us to continue this research. Well, we started talking to her and she's like, this would be great. And she's like, oh, you know what? You should talk to these people that, um, you know, John's um, Hopkins. Yeah, was the first one I think she brought up. And she's like, they've been working on it too. And then I started doing more research, looking at different ones and found other people. And it's, you know, there's not many people doing it, but there's a lot in the Southeast. And so it just grew from there. And we, it was during COVID, and so we started interviewing, meeting the doctors online to film with them. And we interviewed six doctors from five universities. We've got Wake Forest University, Johns Hopkins, Howard University, Morgan State, and North Carolina State University. And as we talked to the doctors, we just, we were, we were amazed at what we were learning, and we were amazed that this information hasn't been yeah, and the, there's people who have followed it that know, but you'd think it'd be more accessible to people to find out, you know, what the research is. I think the one of the the most interesting things that we found was, you know, there's a lot of folklore that's it's like, kind of like chicken soup. Everyone says, you know, you have chicken soup, you'll feel better. And, and they would say, well, the muscadine grape, you know, I eat it. And my family had all these different things, that, you know, you know, my dad did better after he had it. And, and so... That folklore, when they started talking about it, it really is starting to, with all the research being done, they're finding out, yeah, that's true. You know, this is this is exactly what it's doing because here's here's what we see. And so that was uh, Dr. Mary and Lila from uh, NC State with the food. It's like, how, how do you consume it? And then how does it affect your body at that point? 
And so she's like, I don't do cancer. I don't do other stuff, but this is what I see in my job is I study this. Like I study blueberries and they help you because they're good for you. And the reason why they're good for you is because they do X, Y, and Z. And she goes, and then these, they're really great stuff that, you know, we're finding out more and more about them, but it's, it's being consumed. And she's like, you know, the things are like, if you get a cut, if you take a little, you know, you can get a muscadine oil and put it on your cut and it seems to heal faster. And she's like, it definitely feels faster because it accelerates the, you know, the molecules to cover it up and, and to go along. So it's that science that they're putting to it now that is confirming a lot of the stuff that's being done. Um, one, one, of, one of the things that we, we heard was Dr. Lila spoke and said that you know, the, the muscadine grape has all of these properties, all of these polyphenols, polyphenols and, um, but what Dr. Lila said was that the grape isn't growing these things to help humans. The grape is doing this to protect itself, and we're just a beneficiary from all of these wonderful things that are in, in the grape um, naturally. And it comes about, uh, it's native to the southeast, and so uh, you see a lot of grapes that are struggling, you know, there's a lot of disease, there's a lot of, um, with, the, um, with the humid climate, um, a lot of fruits and vegetables struggle in our environment. But the grape has formed these things to help protect itself, and it thrives in in the southeast. And and, it's, and what it's, she's saying is, what protects them is when you eat it, it's the same thing that's protecting you. So it, it was really cool. We went and started doing these Zoom meetings, and we just we met with people from different ones. And I go on to the National Institute of Health and look at different studies. You know, put in muscadine, pull up a whole bunch of them, and then I'm like, okay, there seems to be a lot at Howard University. And then there was another, you know, I talked to this guy at Howard University who was great. And he said, well, you know, I'm working with this other lady over at Morgan State and she's doing so. so that's kind of how it grew naturally from that first one. And I, I you know, there were other people who were doing it that we didn't include in it just because um, timing or they couldn't get into it. And so, you know, we were, we were um, able to work with others. But there's a lot. There's a lot in the Southeast. So. What we did is we, we got to a group, we got our, our Zoom ones done and things started opening back up and we looked at it and it's like, nobody's gonna wanna watch people on a Zoom meeting in a documentary because there's just so much going on already. You know, with that, they're Zoomed out. So we decided we would jump in the car and drive and go to these places and meet with them and videotape them and, and put it together that way. So um, I think our biggest thing was we found out just from the role that we were in because they don't share a lot of that information. So the, you know, there's a lot of silos of so the universities work in their silo and they all work with what they're doing and then another and then one when, might be doing it. And when you finish your research, then you publish it and it goes out on a paper and it goes out on the internet. But there's not a lot of communication. There may be communication that we're not seeing, but it's a relatively small industry, a relatively small group of researchers that have work, been working with muscadine and they didn't all know what the others were doing. Mm -hmm. And so we, we were, we were, we finished the film. We did the documentary, put it together, and then we went back to them and showed them. You know, each of them to have their piece. You know, and watch the document, documentary. And they would be like, "Oh, you'd see them like, I didn't know that." It's like you know, the someone might say, and what they find is they don't get the same results. That's that's the most frustrating thing for me. Is like. You'd see some get really amazing results and other ones not maybe as, as positive as the others. They're all using different 
combinations. Mm. So, you, you know, it's like, okay, you know, if it's like wine, if you have one, you know, it's just going to be different in each situation. So I'd like to see them all use the same or some kind kind of come together. And I think that's one of the things that they talk about with the, um, there's the cancer moonshot where they're trying yeah. to get people together to, to work closer. And even, I mean, even one of the doctors said it in the documentary, she's like, I love what you're doing because you're bringing a group of people together to talk about this and we're all discussing on our own and it, it, just having that community to talk is even better because you don't, why recreate the wheel? I, I think if they can just kind of pull it together and, and, and help each other out, we can be going much faster. Yeah, I mean, they've done really well over the years and the research, I mean, I'm not a researcher, I don't want to be, seem negative, but I think the more they can work together at this final phase and get some of the stuff out there, it's going to be better for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. The, mm -hmm. the health benefits, though, you're seeing from a skin and from healing that way. There's also reducing inflammation. There's the belief that uh, some of the research is showing, you know, working with your gut and putting your microbiome back into. Um, That's why we ask Peggy, it's like, what do you think it's doing? She's like, I think it's just optimizing your gut, you know, and making you more huh. eff eff efficient and working and doing things. And she's like, it's kind of restoring your gut back to normal. One of the things, that. yeah, one of the things they're seeing is improved energy. Mm -hmm. And so they're planning, they're doing a study right now with cancer patients where they were giving the muscadine extract to cancer patients and, and measuring how, you know, is that improving their energy level? But one of the biggest things that they've seen is breast cancer, prostate cancer. And they've seen um, just that it's it's killing the cancer. It, it can kill cancer on its own, and then it also helps to stop a gene from expressing itself, or a protein mm -hmm. um, called snail. And that's kind of what allows it to move. And by stopping that, they're saying this might be able to stop yeah, hmm. it stopped it from, you know, because it's, it's okay when you have prostate cancer in your prostate, they can get rid of it. It's when it travels around. And that's right. when, you know, when you metastases is the, is the bad word, you know, yeah. like, right. they can't get it early enough. But that's the one. And, and the cool thing about the muscadine grape is we didn't get to talk about it in the documentary because we didn't have a lot of information on it. It passes the blood brain barrier. So it will go into your brain, which there's not a lot of options for that right now. And there's not like because it stops chemicals and, and, you know, any kind of medicines, a lot of times that blood-brain variables prohibit it from getting in there. This just passes through. It's a natural thing. It's part of the water. Hmm. It goes into the brain, and they're, they're hoping that we'll see some more research done on that. Which is the, yeah. So, uh, and, it's, and, and even if they said you're taking it, it, it'll help you with other ways. You know, and that's having a little bit more energy. So they were going back and forth. And we'll talk about that in the documentary if you watch it. Um, well, we definitely do want people to watch it. Yeah. So we don't want to spoil too much of what's going on in there. Yeah. I think it's it's definitely worth everyone yeah. going to go see it for sure. So if you wanted to watch the documentary, what I would say is go to ourhealthyhope.com. And it will give you a link to the Vimeo uh, system where you can watch it there. It's, it's 53 minutes long. It's something that Kathy and I did. It's like the two of us together, but, um, amazing. We put it in several different, you know, we, we got done. We're like, wow, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> it's it is pretty good. Yeah, we thought we were like, okay, well, we can see it on the big screen. It was, you know, it was actually work. So it wasn't, and, and we, it was and we were, festivals, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we were thrilled when we, we were invited to show it at River Run. 
And the first festival we were invited to was Amelia Island Film Festival. Oh, cool. And we were, we yeah, were that was, thrilled. That was we, were, we always wanted we to go there. We were doing the happy dance when we got the notification. Yeah. And then, and but you're not, through, you didn't get an Oscar nomination? No, we no. did not. Okay. okay. Well, that's coming. The, yeah, yeah. But through the course of this, we have a few best documentaries that we were awarded and we were thrilled. That was awesome. And, it's great. Yeah. So it's been, so, that's one of the, again, the education that we like to do is education, you know, with the fine wines. And this is one of those education that you can get out to people. One of the things at the Amelia Film Festival, we got this one other filmmaker, which is so funny to say, filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we went to one conference recently. It was down in Georgia. And they, the lady's like, oh, you're the documentarians. And we just kind of, it's like, <laughs> oh, it's like, like, it's like <laughs> usually they say, it's, oh, it's the drinkers. You know, it's like, it's the, what's it like to go to the water? So, but um, yeah, it was, it was um, going around the country and people finding out beyond just the Southeast. And that's kind of the first part we did was because we grew up outside of the Southeast. So we didn't know what Muscadine was when we first moved here. It's like, what's that? And then, uh, so that, that's kind of where we put that first part in. And so the documentary is really three parts. The first part talks a little bit about what is a Muscadine grape and a little bit of background. Second part is the doctors really focus on what they have found in their research. So you're seeing about the cancer findings, you're seeing about the other health benefits. Mm -hmm. And then the last part is talking about with the doctors about what their hopes are going forward. Everyone should go out, watch the, the documentary, mm -hmm. get some muscadine grapes, eat those, drink some muscadine wine, muscadine grape juice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, support that industry. For it's, sure. it's, yeah, I mean, and it comes down to, you know, you can get like you said, you get a fresh one. It comes out in August, and you know that time of year. It's great to have. And a lot of people freeze them, and you know. Oh, yeah. and, and anyway, it's it's just one of those things. It's like anything, you know. Eat healthy. It's another part of that, but I think it's going to be more. I think it's really going to have um, a, a big impact, especially on the cancer. I mean, that one was is pretty amazing, and you can see is actually the film we we show where you can see that it doesn't move after that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that was one of the super toys that they got with the money that was donated from the first first round. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. The triple negative triple negative breast cancer cells and the you could see the cells growing and moving. And then when the researchers applied the muscadine extract, muscadine grape extract to the cancer cells, they it's like they're paralyzed. And by not allowing that expression of the gene, the metastasis stops, you, they kind of sit there and then the drugs can, or or it will kill it on its own. But when in combination with others, it, it kills even more. So, it, and that's what they're seeing is it's going to probably it's not going to be like take this and that's going to be the only right. thing. It's right. going to be a combination effect with sure. other drugs. So, um, so so what's next then? So you you've done this great documentary about healthy hope. Is there going to be a part two? Do you think at some point, or I, do you? Have some other ambitions of doing another documentary now that you got your feet wet? I, I think we're going to continue doing that because people keep on asking. I mean, that's been one thing that we were in Amelia Island. It was kind of a, a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, there was a guy, he said he had done a documentary about trafficking of women. And it was really kind Ooh. of, you know, he's like, and because of that, he became the expert for like the next six years. You know, and people were calling him yeah. and doing it. We get a lot of phone calls now with people who have cancer. Who do I go to? Where do I get it? What, what's the one that she's, which, you know, what's the one that this, you know, place is using? How do you, how do you get on those programs? So, I mean, and, and, and we've had some, I've had some really good calls. People calling me and saying, hey, it has been amazing for me. I'm a, nobody's called me and said it hasn't been, but they said it's been really great uh, in their situation. 
which is really kind of cool to hear. So I think I would like to, you know, we'd like to keep an eye on it when, it, when there's the next wave of studies that come out, which they are supposed to be coming out pretty soon. Um, we'd like to have a follow-up to it and, and probably have an addendum on it. Yeah. And it may not be a separate documentary, but it will be um, at least well, more information. That that'd be awesome. Out, so. And I mean, one of the things when we started this, we just, it looks so promising, the research, the information. We wanted to get it out there, and we just wanted more research dollars going to this, more doctors interested in doing the research, because that's how, that's how this progresses. That's how things get cured. Exactly. Well said. And it was a lot. I mean, it was a lot of work. We'd never done anything that long as, as far as, you know, I, I mean, we had hours, you know, multiple film, uh, multiple shots from cameras, multiple voiceover things that we had. And it was just, it was a lot of work in trying to edit it down into something that it was coherent. And, and I think a lot of it is probably like what you guys do is it's, it's that going back and saying, oh, I wish we could have done this a little different. The lighting was some of the stuff we were just thrown in to get a room and right away to get an interview. And it's like, Oh, I wish we had better lighting in that time, you know, but, you know, it, it came through and, you know, that, that never came, you know, six out of the 12 we entered, we, we won best documentary. So that's awesome. I figured that's batting 500 is pretty good for me. And yeah. especially since it's not something that we ever had done before, it's kind of, it was, you know, we're high five and we find out every time. So popping a, popping open a, a bottle of wine and, and celebrating when we find out. So. And, it, and it's good because they, they keeps on like people keep on saying when what when's the next one coming out and I, I think we probably would love to do something on North Carolina wine and what what's been going on over the last you know 10 years or so and, and kind of bring that to the front so we'll yeah, see that's fermenting yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it takes time I yeah. see what you did there yeah little little pun. So tell, so let's recap again. Tell folks how to find more information about our wine flights, mm -hmm. the documentary, and NZ and fine wines of NZ. If you want to go see the, uh, we'd love to have you watch the film. It's about we say it's fifty three minutes long, which is about maybe a glass and a half to two glasses of wine. Um, it's at ourhealthyhope.com, or you can visit ourwineflights.com, um, or. You know, you can reach out to us on any, either of those spots. If you have questions, we, we take calls. We can help you as much as we can on it and direct you to those questions that we were talking about earlier where people want to know. Uh, we don't promote anyone. I mean, we don't have any kind of financial obligations or, or, or um, promotions with any of these businesses. We just, the, and that was one of the things that we knew from the very beginning we could never do because it, it, the universities would never have permitted us to do the, right. you know, to do it they, they wouldn't have uh, interviewed with them. Mm -hmm. They would not have met with us. Um, but yes, we have we have no financial interest or no financial gain from any of the extract companies mm -hmm. or any of the vineyards for that matter. Yeah. So we just we just tell it like it is, and what we know is the best we can do it to That's help. That's what a good documentarian should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And how can folks uh, learn a little bit more about Fine Lines of North Carolina? You can go to ncfinewines.com and there's information about the competition out there and the results of the competition will be posted out there as well. And they'll come out right after if this is coming out. You'll have a few nights later, you'll be able to turn on uh, the computer and check out ncfinewines.com and see, get a list of all the winners. And, and, uh, and if you are interested in going to the gala, we may have a few tickets left. 
we'll see if anyone cancels. We're going to have a standby list and so oh, wow. on. So if, if not, make it a priority for next year. Then. Yeah, 2024. Yeah. We'll make sure we post all those links on the show notes for this uh, show as well. So That's great. All right. Thank Kathy you. and Dan, we definitely appreciate it. This has been great. Really informational. Um, the fine wines is always fun. The documentary was very enlightening. I love watching it. So I highly recommend everyone go out there and watch it too. All right. Thank thanks, you very much. Thanks for having Thank us. We get, we get to see you guys around a lot, but this has been great because we've had a long conversation. It's been great to get to get, know you guys better too. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Kathy and Dan. We encourage all of our listeners to check out the documentary Healthy Hope and learn about the groundbreaking research that is going on now. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Notes. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when you foul a bottle. Cheers! is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.